This is the end of the Gospel of Mark, and beginning back in chapter 11, Mark had already prepared us for this by recounting Jesus' messianic entry into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple. So not the Palm Sunday entrance to the temple back in chapter 11, but the cleansing of the temple. And then in chapter 12, he established the basis of Jesus' authority to perform these actions. That is, that he is God's beloved son who was sent by the Father. So Jesus does this action of clearing the temple. And then in chapter 12, Mark establishes Jesus' authority to do that. And then in chapter 13, the chapter just before the ones we read, there's an end times discourse that gives us an interpretive key to Jesus's passion by showing that it marks the transition from the former age to the age of the new covenant. And then the gospel reading from today. One of the things I love about Mark's account of the passion narrative is the role that women play in that gospel He's careful to name who was there. He's careful to to tell us who was there. And with the exception of one person who actually we're going to talk about and plays a very important role, these women are named. They otherwise wouldn't have been named. We probably would not know who they are. But the very beginning of our gospel reading tonight, verse 1, tells us that we are in the third day of Jesus' visit to Jerusalem. So our gospel actually doesn't start today on Palm Sunday. It's, It's three days from now. It's jumping ahead to the Wednesday, right? That, the, or the Tuesday evening until the Wednesday evening, right? The Jewish reckoning of that third day. So this is two days before the yoked celebration of Passover in unleavened bread. That's what brought Jesus to Jerusalem is the celebration of Passover and unleavened bread. This, uh, this feast, these feasts commemorate the holiest day of the old covenant, remembering the exodus of Israel from Egypt. So Jesus and his disciples come to town for this celebration, and many others come to town for this very reason. So the the city is very crowded, and and the other gospels tell us that this is the the crowd that Jesus arrived on Palm Sunday in, right? This crowd that had come to Jerusalem that is acclaiming him as the king of the world and with the palm fronds. That happened on Sunday, and now here we are on the Wednesday And so Mark is setting up Jesus's passion, right, by saying that he's there and it's a couple days before the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Mark is setting up Jesus's passion as the ultimate fulfillment of the Exodus, right? God's definitive deliverance of his people from slavery to sin and death. There's so many ways you can read the scriptures, but one of those ways would be to to read the deliverance of the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt and then into the promised land, and then their ongoing uh, troubles and challenges as part of the story that, in a sense, that exodus is not done, right? Though they left Egypt, they keep looking back over their shoulder time and time again. They're like us. They're just simply frail people, sinful people, people who want food in the wilderness and water in the wilderness. They want what's reasonable for a group of people wandering homeless, But then as God gives them that land, they they fail to take all of it as God had commanded them. And so we see worked out through the historical books and through the prophets, God calling his people to finish the work of the Exodus. And so Mark sets up the passion as the final and definitive 
moment of the Exodus. Again, that God is delivering his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from slavery to sin and death. And Mark sets this up. He gives us this time frame. He sets up this, this bigger um, chronological narrative, if you will, and begins the gospel reading from tonight by talking about two kinds of people. The first kind of people are the chief priest and the scribes. Jesus has already prophesied that it is the religious leaders who would condemn him to death. He had done that back in chapter 8 and again in chapter 10. Jesus knew who it was that was going to condemn him to death, and he prophesied about it. He had talked about it with his disciples. So we're not surprised to see the role that's played by the chief priests and the scribes in the death of Jesus. He told us it was coming. Moreover, the religious leaders have long been plotting Jesus' death. So even before Jesus told his disciples and us uh, who read the gospel, we had already seen these religious leaders back in chapter 3, chapter 11, chapter 12, plotting the death of Jesus, looking for an opportunity to catch Jesus doing something that would be worthy of death. And so they're now ready to execute their plan, right? Their plan by treachery. But the ESV says by stealth, but I like the translation by treachery. Yes, they're doing it quietly. That's what, you know, we think of stealth. They're doing it quietly and undercover, but they're treacherous as they do it. That's why they're being stealthy, right? Because they're being treacherous, right? You don't run treachery up a flagpole and announce you're doing it. You do it quietly and subtly as best you can. And this treachery was necessary so that there would be no uproar from the people, right? They had seen, verse 2 says that, they had seen what had happened at the, at the triumphal entry at Palm Sunday. They had seen that. And they knew that if they were going to trap Jesus and put him to death now, the crowd might riot, and so they didn't want an uproar for the people. So they had to act quietly, stealthily, and treacherously. Yet we could ask ourselves, what exactly is this treachery that they're doing? Not, not the crime itself of handing Jesus over and putting him to, having him put to death, but what is this treachery? Well, simply put, it is deceit. And back in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus says that deceit is one of the sins that comes out of the heart. That's Jesus' language. The sin of treachery comes out of the heart, as does, Jesus says, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's Jesus' list, not mine. Right? So this treachery comes from out of the heart. Right? This is not a sin of opportunity. This is something that has been growing up inside of these religious leaders. This is something they've been cultivating within them. That's what it means to do this treachery. So it's not just on the sly. It's just not on the down low so they don't upset people. But it's something that's been born inside of them that, that Mark had been talking about all the way back in chapter 3. Thus, this is not just a pragmatic, religious, or political disagreement with Jesus. These religious leaders have a heart issue. Right? This just isn't politics. Well, Jesus, we want someone who's going to come and kick the Romans' butt. And no offense, but it's not going to be you. Right? This isn't just a different approach to get out of what they may sense as to be the Roman oppression. 
No, this is something that has been growing inside of them. They have a heart issue. They want to put Jesus to death. And it might be obvious to say, yeah, if you want someone dead, you have a heart issue. (laughs) Right? So again, they're not just being motivated by any pragmatic concern. Oh no, Jesus is going to cause problems for us, right? He's going to get the Romans upset and they're going to persecute us. That's always what they do. Or no, Jesus, we're not pacifist. We want to get in there and get active. Raise up some people, grab some sticks, grab some swords. Let's go in there and let's take Jerusalem and our land back from these Romans. No, instead, fomenting in their heart is treachery. They want Jesus to die. So we're introduced to these chief priests and scribes who are treacherous. And, and then in verses 10 through 11, and that's verses 1 and 2, and then in 10 through 11, at the beginning of our gospel, this treachery comes up again with Judas. The text tells us that Judas also is treacherous. Judas has a heart issue. How else could you follow the incarnate Son of God for three years, but be willing to betray him for 30 pieces of silver? How else could you have not seen the miracles, heard the teachings, witnessed all that Jesus did, but yet still in your heart be willing to go and betray him? Now, we know Judas may or may not have repented. We know he took his life, or that the text tells us that in other Gospels. But the point is, is chief priests and scribes are treacherous, just like Judas is treacherous. But then wedged in between those two examples of treacherous persons is a woman. A nameless woman, actually, in the Gospel of Mark. And this woman... I think, is the ideal image of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That is, if we have treachery from the chief priests and the scribes, and we have treachery from Judas, in between there is the ideal example. Right? In this kind of literary sandwich, if you will, if treachery is the bread, then here, the meat of this part of the gospel is focusing on the actions of this woman, who, from John's gospel, we learn is Mary the sister of Martha and Lazarus, right? So we we know who this Mary is from other Gospels. She's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and so we know the story about Jesus going to their home, right? And Mary and Martha busy about fixing dinner for Jesus and Mary doing something that Martha thought, no, she needs to help. And of course, that was all on the back end of Jesus having come and raised Lazarus from the dead, So this is someone who knows Jesus well, and he knows her well. This is his friends. But Mark chooses not to name her. She's just simply the woman. The context here is some sort of a formal meal, because the text tells us they're reclining at table. That indicates some sort of formality. And they're at the house of Simon the leper. And we have no idea who this Simon the leper is, but he was clearly known to these people. In fact, Jesus may have healed him at one point, and they're in Bethany, which is also the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So they're at this formal meal together in the house, and again, the woman brings in a very expensive flask of pure nard. Nard's an aromatic oil made from a root that's native to India, right? So think about where they're at, think about where India's at, right? This is precious and costly aromatic oil, 
And Mary goes and gets it. And so, of course, she's choosing something expensive. This is a costly decision on her part. Now, Mark is likely thinking about and pointing us toward Song of Solomon 12, 12, or verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, where nard is the bride's perfume for the banquet of the king. If the religious leaders thought Jesus was a rabble-rouser who should be killed, Mary saw him as a king. This woman saw him as a king worthy of being anointed with her very expensive and precious oil. Again, this nameless woman, and Mark gets it. She knows who Jesus is. She understands who he is. And she acts consistent with that. Moreover, whereas the chief priests and the scribes acted treacherously and stealthily, Mary acts publicly and with abandon. Right? She breaks the flask open. Right? It's not like she carefully took the lid off and poured out just a little bit because, you know, this costs money. No, she comes in and we're told she broke the flask. The Greek word for broke there literally means just to shatter. I think she just went all out. She just came back in with it, threw it on the ground, shattered it open to get at that oil. As one commentator I read this week points out, quote, to anoint someone's head with oil was a gracious and hospitable gesture. Right? In that culture, to anoint someone was already to be hospitable and to be gracious. In and of itself, this action is not terribly strange. But... But for Jews steeped in the Old Testament, this was how you crowned a king. Think about David in 1 Samuel. Not only that, but this is how you ordained a priest, according to the book of Exodus. So this anonymous woman's gesture is a symbolic recognition of Jesus, the messianic king, and the high priest. She gets it. The scribes, the chief priest, Judas, they just want him dead. But this woman, she knows that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. She knows that he is the high priest over Israel. And so what do you do when you have a king in your house? What do you do when you have the high priest of the Israelite people in your house? You anoint him with oil. And you do it with abandon, holding nothing back. I don't know actually what nard smells like. Maybe some of you have smelt it. But I'm happy tonight that we are using incense so that we are smelling something aromatic and fragrant as we think about the kind of smell that would have wafted through that house. Right? This is public. No one's missing it. First of all, she goes out, she comes back, she breaks the thing. That alone would be startling. I would have, you know, if it was me, I probably would have thought, where are my kids? What are they breaking now, right? Assuming there were some kids around. What's happening? Someone broke something. And there she would have been, having broken that, that, um, that flask in order to get at that oil, and then she anointed Jesus' head. Again, a typical gesture, but yet she knows that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. She knows that he's the high priest of Israel. So she is doing the only thing she can do to acknowledge it and to anoint him, right? It's a prefigurement of who Jesus is. If you're reading this gospel and you don't know who Jesus is, if you think you should agree with the chief priests and the scribes and Judas, you're wrong. This woman shows you that you're wrong. She shows you, moreover, what it is to be a disciple, 
It's to acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is. And the irony, if that's the right word of all of this, is that this is the only time in Mark's gospel that the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one, is anointed. She's basically saying, this is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. I have no idea how many other people were in this house. I have no idea if Simon the leper is going, what's happening? How am I ever going to get the smell out of my house? (laughs) Open the windows, right? But this woman is screaming out in her way the truth of who Jesus is. And Mark sets it up so that we see that. Before we're ever hearing the people, or tonight, having us say, crucify him, crucify him, she's anointing him as king, anointing him as the high priest, recognizing that he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. She gets it. And I love the fact that she's nameless in Mark's gospel. But something else to consider, and Mark gets at this by the end of the gospel reading, after Jesus has died, As importantly, dead bodies were also anointed with oil. So she's not just gesturing about how great Jesus is. She's also pointing us towards his death. I'm sure none of this was lost on Jesus. I'm sure he understood exactly what the woman was doing. I imagine he hoped others would understand this symbolism. That instead of complaining about the fact that she had, you know, used up this costly oil that could have been sold for money, that instead she did the only thing that she could do, knowing that he was the king and the high priest of Israel. But also, even before he dies, she's preparing him for his death. So another way to think of it is Mary lifts Jesus up, just like he will be on the cross, but also prepares his body for the death, just like his descent from the cross described in Mark. Let me conclude with a quotation from the Venerable Bede. When he wrote a homily about this text, he wrote, What Mary once did, the entire church and every perfect soul should do always. What Mary once did, the entire church and every perfect soul should do always. So as we enter into this Holy Week, how will you recognize and anoint Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the high priest of Israel. Yet at the same time, how will you prepare him and yourself for his burial? I say this every year, but let me say it again. Do not rush to Easter. Do not rush to Easter. Sit quietly and eagerly in anticipation through the death and the pain of the death. Because even while dead, Jesus was still the king, the high priest, the one who would be resurrected. But let us not rush there, and instead let us think what Mary once did, 
and think about how we too can do the same. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.